Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 27. All right, welcome back, guys. Been a good week. How about you? Yeah, we're getting uh, close to the big media event. A little over a week away. Uh, finally, some of our betas will get finalized and we'll find out about some new products hopefully and we got an official the the invitation went out right yeah yeah it's uh officially september 9th i believe all right crossing fingers and toes for apple tv seems pretty certain at this point so yeah (laughs) it's certainly to be a letdown again you know i think there were some write-ups from People usually only make comments when it does actually happen, so I feel pretty confident that there will be something. But we haven't gotten a yep yet, so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm skeptical, but hopeful. Really? Skeptical, it's, but hopeful. It's got to happen. I think yeah. there will be something new. It could be disappointing <laughs> our expectations have been pretty high so and given and how no... much time they've spent on it or supposedly spent on it uh, right you expect it to be mind-blowing well there's a good chance they'll announce something but there there's also a good chance that they won't give us an sdk yep and that would be really frustrating that would be the height of all frustration with Apple TV. Well, all the rumors say that the service is not going to be there, so if it's not for the service, I can't imagine they'd just be like, here's this new interface for Apple TV, and we have a wacky new controller without an app store. It seems like kind of a logical next step is to have have the app store, and everyone seems to think it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah and... I mean, they're getting competed with left and right nowadays. Google has their, was it, is it, I can never remember, is it Android TV or Google TV? One of the ones is new, the other one's old and dead. Can't remember which one. Well, and they have their Chromecast too. Yeah. Yeah. I think Android TV is the new one. Google TV died. Okay. But who knows? Everything's always in beta with Google. <laughs> Until it dies. But yeah. they have a they have that nice little lean back interface and it looks nice, works pretty well. Their the Nexus player thing that they put out is solid piece of hardware. So let's hope we get something much better than that. Android was trying to partner with T V manufacturers and get uh, their get Android built into the T V. I don't know how much success they've had with that, if any, or if that was just, you know, a preview of technology they're working on and may or may not ship. But it's something they talked about at Google I.O. a couple of years ago. Yeah, and they really didn't push it too hard at this past I.O., so I don't know yeah. what's going on there. I mean, you would kind of think that Samsung might do something with a TV, but then again, maybe they were... Maybe they would try to put in their Tizen platform or something awful like that. Yeah, I thought they already had their own smart TV stuff yeah. with apps and all that. Most of them do have, most of the major manufacturers have some sort of smart TV that lets you install apps. So they probably aren't terribly motivated. But at the same time, it's not, I don't think too many of them have an actual marketplace for selling apps or getting third party apps app developers involved just the the big apps like netflix and amazon prime and whatnot lots of third-party content providers that have their own apps but not on the apple tv so we got some follow-up this week guys some uh we uh we talked in our 813 episode about licensing and guy his twitter handle is 
Y O N O M I T T, Yanomit. And he links us out to a website, tldrlegal.com. And it's a big licensing database. So you can go out there, check it out, and see like just exactly what a software license entails. So if you want to do incorporate that into your code, then you know exactly what your obligations are and what kind of rights you're granted. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a much better presentation than you get when you just look at the thousand-line-long block of text that's included with the license on whatever whatever code you have. They have it split up into nice, easily understandable sections and summaries and stuff like that. Hence the TLDR. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, one of the things I found cool about it was that it also has various uh, terms of services for different services out there like Dropbox and you can get a little TLDR of each of the paragraphs in the Dropbox license agreement. I was kind of bummed they don't have the iTunes terms of service but <laughs> but it seems like a really good uh resource so if you're if you're trying to figure out how to license your open source code or trying to figure out how you can use someone else's code check it out. Yeah, that's when I'll be bookmarking. So last week we talked about 360i Dev, and uh, late last week they released some of the videos on Vimeo. So if you didn't make it to the conference, you can check out some of the session videos. Uh, go to 360i Dev, uh, but not all the videos have been posted yet. So it's just a, a select number of videos so far. Hopefully they'll get the other ones out there soon. There were some sessions I missed that I was hoping to catch up with on the videos, but they're not posted yet. Yeah, and there was uh, at least one or two keynote videos posted as well, Yeah, which is pretty cool because a lot of times the conference will post the session videos, but not necessarily the keynote videos. And there's good content in those. Yeah, and they are downloadable. And they're yeah. DRM-free, which is pretty cool. For the first time, they're not, they're not hosted on Realm's website, which is weird. <laughs> uh, 360i devs had a Vimeo channel. Uh, so you can get videos from this year and previous year's Vimeo portfolio. And they've got another conference coming up, their 360i Dev Mini. I'm not quite sure the dates of that. I think it might be October. October 5th through 6th in Greenville, South Carolina. That's a much smaller event than their main event. In Den- if you didn't make it to Denver and you're near Greenville, South Carolina, you can check it out. All right, it's a single-track conference. You'll definitely be able to talk about what's going on or what was in the session with everybody. It's not like you're going to come up to somebody and say, hey, what sessions did you see? And then not really know what they're talking about. It looks like some good sessions. A little reactive cocoa and some MVVM iBeacons. Good old iBeacons. I don't think I'll be able to make it out to that one, but it would be pretty fun. Yeah, we've uh, Alex and I are going to be at the release notes conference in October, so it's kind of kind of tough to make it to too many of these events especially when they're in the same month yeah we'll have to uh, maybe start up a touring bus or something shared instance bus and drive <laughs> around the country sounds like a plan yeah get on that will you <laughs> uh ios 9 is right out right around the corner so we thought there'd be nothing better to talk about than all the cool new stuff that was in ios 8 basically <laughs> Now you can use it all, because uh, most people tend to support uh, the current version, the last version that was released, for a variety of reasons, because that's what the usage normally lets you do if you're targeting like 5 or 10% of users to be able to get rid of supporting them. And also, that's the only thing that Apple really makes it feasible to support. They make it a real pain if you want to go back two versions. You have to probably use a separate version of Xcode and it's a bag of hurt. I don't know about you guys, but there's a whole bunch of cool stuff that I got excited about for for about three weeks last year and then I was like, oh, I can't use this. Oh yeah. Number one on my list, frameworks. Framework oh yeah. I totally forgot about that one. I'm yeah, I'm pumped for that. That has a lot of implications. It opens up other features like IB designable in interface builder for one. Right. No longer having to just drop in a UI view placeholder into your storyboard. 
than loading the nib manually and stuff, because that was always awful. Cocoa Pond or Carthage, whichever your preference comes, a lot more feasible. Yeah. Well, and just use with frameworks, just using a pod that's written in Swift. Yeah. Because you couldn't, or you, Swift didn't support static libraries. So, yeah, we're for the, for all those people that have to support the N minus one, current release minus one, it's going to be great to be able to finally really use framework. Also, lets you think about your own app in a in a different way and breaking it into more composable mini framework. You know, moving your business logic into its own framework or or a sub module makes that a lot easier. I mean, we had static libraries and other things in the past, but not always easy, especially if you had assets that you wanted to be able to bundle up and share. Right. And I, I think Apple really wants developers to think about their applications in terms of framework. Yeah, maybe we'll have to revisit that because I spent a lot of pain on, on my apps getting stuff working in static libraries and, and resource bundles. Uh, I kind of had a whole bunch of reusable code between all of my apps because there's a lot of common functionality. Maybe we'll have yeah. to take a look at changing that up. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who also created their own pods in order to share code, their own application. So Frameworks makes that even easier. Yeah, definitely. You can definitely modularize your app. So if, you work, if you've been working on an app that's uh, got a big code base and it's kind of been creeping along, and now you can, instead of even thinking about horizontal slices, but thinking about vertical slices too. So maybe you've got an app that's got a lot of different sections in it or features to it. And those can all be framework independently. So that was a big one. What else, uh, if we were in our time machine, what else would we be excited about? I've been looking forward to using size classes for because I support iOS 7 in most of my apps, or I have been. Size classes weren't something I could really take too much advantage of. Now I can. Yeah, you could, in 7, you could use size classes, but you had to be judicious about it, and there were some limitations with it. So I'm looking forward to those limitations going. Well, there's a number of things that Apple introduced with iOS 8 that make the whole adaptive UI concept more feasible, size classes being one of the major ones. But they also ported UI split view controller to the iPhone and adapt the screen size. You know, that kind of plays into the whole size classes, but lets you build the same code with UI split view controller that you would on the iPad for the iPhone, with like master detail, rather than having to have a big fork in your code. Here's how it's laid out on the iPhone versus the iPad. Yeah, I wonder if we'll see a new swath of apps that are supporting iPhone 6 Plus when iOS 9 comes out. Yeah. Because that would be nice. <laughs> the, the landscape mode. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, and in some cases you you get it for free. If you just make sure you implement compact height and regular width, one of the the apps I work on during the day, what we just rewrote a new section of the of one of the app, a part of the app, and used universal storyboards. And one of the things we did also was for a detail screen, used a compact height, regular width. So on the if we actually did support rotations in that app, then the six plus users would be able to see that and see the <laughs> special interface for them. But the, we ended up using the compact height for and regular width for a uh, custom modal. And so it was really easy to differentiate between the tablet modal versus a uh, pushed on view controller for phone. Cool. One of the really nice ones uh, that I'm looking forward to be able to use is uh, WK WebView. I've written a lot of UI web WebView code over the years, and it'll be sad to see it go, but having better performance, better better security, although not Safari view controller levels of, of those things is a pretty enticing thing. Yeah, I think if you're building like a hybrid application, WK a, a great win. Just the improved JavaScript performance alone makes that a pretty attractive option. Yeah, and one of the things I'm also looking forward to is the UI search controller, because when Apple introduced collection views, they really didn't introduce any kind of search support for them. So kind of had to roll your own thing and I've rolled it several times now and I hated it every time. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to the, an actual way of using a search controller. Uh, there's also a new replacement for UI action sheet and UI alert view to, you know, again, back to that adaptive UI agenda of or motivation from Apple is the UI alert controller, which kind of takes those two things and wraps it into one controller 
and lets it adapt to the right screen size. Yeah, so what what exactly does it do different if it's on an iPad versus a phone? Well, you can specify the preferred style, but basically you can use the exact same logic, build, build it up the same way. You just change the presentation style with the UI Alert controller, and you've got kind of nice with the UI Alert view, you always had to have the delicate method. And, you know, right now I'm using a backport of UI Alert controller that is somewhat questionable, but I'm able to specify act for the button. And, you know, it, it, to some degree, it can be intelligent about whether or not to present it as an action sheet or alert view based on the number of buttons and, and things like that. So uh, it's, a, it's a much cleaner implementation than either of those two. And it lets you interchange them or change the style fairly easily. Okay. Yeah, I always hated UI alert view and used one of the, the myriad block-based APIs on top of it. Yeah, so this kind of accomplishes that same thing, but in a cleaner way. Well, and the UI alert controller also had, lets you put the custom UI in there that people always had all kinds of hacks to do. You can throw buttons in your alert controller or input fields. And there's always bad ways to do it, but now it's shit. Okay. Like, we, we, I remember back in, like, the iOS 5 days, we our app broke because uh, we were using one of those hacks just, like, you know, add some subviews onto this UI alert view bad things happened it just disappeared so no one no one could use our app that was fun but mm. it's nice to be able to do that for reals now so did you guys use touch id at all have you written to the api we have it on the backlog for one of our apps and i'm actually kind of surprised of how few apps have adopted it so i'm kind of hopeful as ios 7 diminishes we'll see a lot more apps that have touch id enabled yeah the one I use most is 1Password. Yeah. And it's very nice it, to be able to use that. Oh, yeah. And especially because I have an iPad Air, just the first-gen one, without Touch ID. So when I use 1Password on that, it's so much more of a pain. So the, the Touch ID really does simplify that security model. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's why I don't use my iPad as much these days, because there's no Touch ID on there. I just have a Air 1. Mm-hmm. Huh, well, I wonder if that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll be able to upgrade it now with a iPad Pro, right? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. We'll see. <laughs> right. And then kind of related to that, another feature that Apple gave a decent amount of stage time to that really hasn't had a whole lot of adoption, at least from my perspective, is handoff. So hopefully we'll see more with handoff. And you know, the idea is that you can be working on one device and pick up on another seamlessly especially you know mac versus an ios device one interesting implementation of that i've seen is overcast they will do a handoff to chrome so if you're listening to a podcast you close your computer chrome pops up if you want to continue listening on a computer which i thought was interesting hmm. uh just random note there but when when alex talked about things that uh, apple gave a lot of screen time to and wasn't you know, widely adopted. I thought he was talking about CloudKit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's that, too. And CloudKit is a huge improvement over syncing options that we had before with Core Data Sync. And, uh, you know, it's fairly promising. Price Pricing's good. You know, if you want to build an app and you need a backend, uh, you can get pretty far without spending any money. And the CloudKit API is a lot better, a lot more intuitive, perhaps, than what we had with core data syncing, but you are kind of locked into the Apple ecosystem. Now with iOS 9, or you know, this year they introduced the JavaScript API for CloudKit, so you can build a web application that talks to CloudKit. I suppose you could try and get that to work from Android too, using the, the REST API. I think that only supported the uh, public data. Like if you had to have any kind of security on your data or an individual user's data, then that wouldn't work. No, I think you can log in. I, to be honest, I haven't tried it, but I believe you can let a user authenticate using their Apple ID and they can get to their data. But like I said, I haven't tried to, to build it. And I think you know the biggest obstacle here is you are locked into Apple's ecosystem and the user has to opt in to iCloud. Which, you know, I don't know too many people who don't enable iCloud. 
on their device. Every now and then you see a random one. I get support emails from the people who don't all the time. <laughs> now they do, you know, assuming they are logged into iCloud, it does make it easier. You don't have to worry about managing usernames and passwords and authentication. You don't have to worry, you know, if you were to use something like Dropbox, you'd have to have them sign into their Dropbox account with like OAuth or some other solution. Um, or an extension, which was another thing that was new in iOS 8 that it's kind of easier to do now that you can drop support for 7. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, some of that you could kind of, like extensions, you could at least kind of get into an app that supported 7. I think it was a little awkward, a little bit tricky. Oh, yeah. WK Web View, you could. I'm, I'm sure you could do put conditional logic around, like, Touch ID or even handoff. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the stuff there you could, it was just not very elegant. And for a lot of people, it was like, eh, not going to bother with it if it's not like core to, you know, the usage of my app. But now that it's just like, oh, just write the code, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. Well, there's, you know, the whole notion of, of the back end and data syncing, you know, that's for some applications, that's critical to the functionality of the application. So if you don't have it, you're not going to use it, so you're going to look for an alternative. If if a large percentage of your users can't use it, yet as of late last week, it looked like Apple was reporting just a little above 10% still using iOS 7, and Mixpanel has it at a little below 10%, like maybe below 9%. Well, it's getting better. Yeah, it's still a pretty, you know, 9 percent is still a pretty big number when you look at the number of devices out there but you know ios 9 will ship soon most likely we'll have new hardware and you know those two things will drive the that percentage down even yeah there are a fair number of people that just don't really update their devices and when they uh, get their new one when their contracts run out so maybe they'll get a new 6S and replace their 5S, and then they'll be on the newest. It'll be great. So, like, the devices that can't support iOS 8 is anything older than a 4S. So, what is that, three years old? Three or more years old? Yeah, well, the 4S is, what, three now, right? I think so. So that, that means, you know, a user trying to run your app on iOS 7 either has the ability to upgrade to iOS 8 or they're running on hardware that may be four plus years old and the experience is going to be so optimal anyway. Right. So drop it. Drop 7. September 9th. Drop it. So did anybody catch that it's going to be September 9th, which is September being the ninth month, the ninth day? And they're going to release iOS 9. That reminds me of Dreamcast launch, which was in September 9th of 1999. <laughs> you recall that? <laughs> I remember the Dreamcast. I don't remember the launch. But... Oh, yeah. It was, it was, it was uh, they went all out on the, the fancy date. But I had not noticed that. Uh, good call, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> that was good hardware. I love that Dreamcast. It's too bad Sega gave up on it. I don't think they had much of a choice. They gave up on everything, pretty much. Yeah. Now they have all yeah. the spammy in-app purchase games, like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, when they dumped their hardware business, that was definitely a sign. It wasn't going to go anywhere. So we do have iOS 9 coming out. And for those who still have to support iOS 8, there's probably not a lot you can use. But you can use Swift 2, at least. And doesn't Swift 2 even target iOS 7? Yeah. Sounds right. There's a whole caveat about the frameworks and all that good stuff, but yeah. Right. You can run your Swift 2 and like normal, linking statically to stuff. But yeah, and Swift 2 is a huge improvement. I know we've talked about it a few times throughout the summer here. I'll be looking forward to switching over to that. At work, we're going to start doing new features, new things in Swift. It's about time to, to jump in. Swift 2 is still evolving. Uh, we had a 
new Xcode beta not too long ago, so you know, we might still see some language changes and um, before it goes gold. I've gotta imagine we're done. Because we're just gonna get so. the GM next. I'd hope so. Right. Well, so they did rev uh Swift this past year, you know, with one one and one two. And I think didn't last year um so Mavericks came out later than iOS. And those guys, weren't they the ones that were part of the Mac developer program? Weren't they allowed to try out like the 1.1 betas for Swift? Does that ring a bell? I thought everybody could. You, you were talking about Yosemite, right? Yeah, Yosemite. There was uh, there were some Mac developer program only betas of Xcode last year. Oh, were there? I think part of that you. was the Yosemite still being beta or a point release of Yosemite, one or the other. So we had a couple of different flavors of Xcode in beta at the same time. Right. And they had different yeah. versions of Swift, if I recall. Yeah, that was kind of a mess. Yeah. Well, we might see that again this year, too. Well, but everybody now has Mac developer program if you have the iOS developer program, since they unified everything. What I think will be interesting with Swift is if they live up to their promise and open source it this fall. I don't know if that means September. There was a promise of making that open source and having a port to Linux out of the box or out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be really interesting if you could target an Android device with Swift. Or you can build your back-end solution in Swift if you don't want to learn another another language. I've been toying a little bit with Go. I mean, just, just really lightly. But they now support doing shared libraries with iOS and Android. Yeah, Go has some familiar feel coming from Swift. I haven't yeah. played with it really enough to say if that's a legitimate statement. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do say that it, it, it's a C-based language. So if you're comfortable with those, which we all are, uh, then Go shouldn't be too much of a, a switch. But I'm a little bit interested in that because you can build frameworks with it. I'm a little worried about the bitcode part of it since Apple has said that they are going to be requiring bitcode at some point. Don't know how soon Go would support bitcode, if ever. And so that would be a no-go. Well, does it not do some type of translation or... Go? Yeah. The Go compiler? It compiles to... Uh, it, it targets... Um, the ARM architecture that the uh, Apple CPUs run on. So like LLVM bytecode or, I mean, that's got to be what it is. You know, I don't know because they're not a LLVM-based compiler. I don't know that the ARM version of it does that, works that way. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know enough about it to, to say one way or the other. Pretty sure they haven't converted to LLVM. They were doing kind of this dual GCC and Plan 9 compiler for a while, and I don't know where all that's at. But yeah, the bitcode stuff is interesting to me. It's part of Apple's app thinning, I don't know, app thinning feature. Yeah, it falls into the app thinning category, but I think you know, bitcode to some degree is foreshadowing of of hardware to come and potential shift in chip architecture or broader support of, of chip architecture. I don't know. I don't have any uh, references to back this up, but the impression that I've gotten from listening to other people is that BitCode is not really designed to like let you completely shift architectures or something that's different in any way, just because there's so much like specific stuff built into the LLVM bytecode, which makes it hard to... To do it could be a long game you know it could be that you know it wouldn't be the first time that apple has broken up a, a large transition into a multi-year multi-phase release yeah, true. yeah so i mean we could it may not be that it's going to happen next week but yeah maybe bitcode version two or something yeah, yeah. i can see that so are you have you read or heard that you couldn't say take the same bitcode that's targeting iphone and 
ARM CPUs and use it in uh, x86, for instance, or x86 bit code going to ARM? Is it just too different? Correct. Yeah, okay. I, think, I think they may have like different byte order and you know fundamental things like that that are different. Yeah, that would that would, would make sense. But they did have for a long time. They did have the fat binaries that would run on PowerPC as well as x86. We've always heard grumblings of a ARM-based Mac some that might come out someday. Maybe this technology will play a part in that. Yeah. So we, we may see something on September 9th that makes that strategy more clear, or it could be something that we'll see evolve over the next few years. Mm-hmm. Or it might, it might be as simple as a Qualcomm CPU that you can target now, like a Snapdragon. Maybe they're putting a Snapdragon in the Apple TV instead of a A9 or A10. Wouldn't seem feasible. Some quick real-time follow-up. Uh, looks like ARM has bi-endian hardware, so it can go both ways. Little and big endian. Uh, but x86 is only little endian, so... I'm not 100% sure about the what the compatibility is or what the default is or what bytecode specifically does. But I I had not heard that about ARM hardware. That's interesting. That's what the NDN this Wikipedia article says, so it must be true. It's on the internet. <laughs> uh, we'll see. So the the app thinning, though, is interesting yeah, that's, itself. That, that's something that could be beneficial right away. You know, being able to, you know, we, we're already using asset catalogs to manage images. Or, and if you're not, you probably should start adopting that. And now with Xcode 7, you can manage different types of assets like videos or data files or even um, sprite sheets. And now you can specify different traits of what devices they're supported on. So you could have device family, um, GPU type, you know, one meg or two meg, you know, just a, a number of different attributes. And the App Store will thin down your binary and send only what's needed for that device. So if you had like a high-res video and a low-res video based on what the device could support, instead of the user downloading everything, they're downloading only the assets that are relevant to their their hardware, which you know speeds up the download, improves the experience for them. If you're already flirting with the max cell download size of your app, then uh, this could be a big help. Yeah, it's also a good technology for game developers. Some of the levels can be bigger than what you might include normally, and they'll be downloaded on the fly. Yeah, so that gets into the on-demand resources so you could download just the levels they need when they need it and not download everything at once and do that with really any type of app and fairly easy to implement yeah i i am actually convinced that apple just came out with this technology so that people who were unfortunate enough to buy 16 gigabyte devices can have more can have more than just the Facebook app installed. Yeah. I think oh, don't they sell eight gigabyte devices still? No, I don't think so. Pretty sure the five C only comes in eight gigabyte right now. Could be. Oh. So for those people <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I I thought it was only I thought it was a sixteen. I think when it maybe when it originally came out there was a sixteen, but Looks like there's only 8 gigabyte right now. If you go to the store, there's not even a choice to get 16 gig. It's only 8 gig iPhone 5C, which is horrible. Yeah, that's sad. Sorry to break the news to you like the Sam. <laughs> so, yeah, it is for those 5C owners that have the Facebook app installed. But, uh, that's a horrible app. It's so big. <laughs> so, what about multitask? I think this is the probably the big feature of iOS 9, yes, and it's specific to iPad, but you know, this is something you're probably going to want to start thinking about with your own apps, make your app capable of playing into multitasking. Yeah, I think it's going to be one of those things where Apple supports this on older hardware, but they support it to a lesser 
degree, you know, the experience is degraded. It's like on my Air, I can do the multitasking, but the app that was in the foreground gets kind of paused, I guess it is. Yeah, you can do the kind of slide over cover view, but you can't do the split view. Both are active at the same time. I wouldn't even call yeah. that multitasking. You can do the picture-in-picture picture on an iPad Air, though, which is nice. Mm-hmm. But I have this feeling that, you know, on the Air 2, you'll be able to run both apps, but on the iPad, but you'll run, what, one of them in, uh, like, compact width mode and one in regular width mode? Is that how it works? You can also do, like, split. You can do completely split. Yeah. Now, are those both compact width or are they both regular width? Any, any idea? Don't remember. I yeah. my head. Yeah, I know. Okay. Gone through this a couple times, but uh, can't remember. Well, probably the iPad Pro will be a better experience for that. Yeah. And then we'll all want to rush out and buy those. Well, we might see that as kind of a high end computer replacement. If you. Pair it with a keyboard and a mouse. You've got split screen. Stylus, don't forget the stylus. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't blow it. Don't worry. So, in a way, it might might be somewhat similar to a Surface Pro. Didn't Steve Jobs have something against the stylus? Oh yeah. Yeah, that, that was the reference I just made. He he said if you see a stylus, they blew it. Okay. <laughs> now all the rumors say there's a stylus, but Steve changed his mind many times. Yeah. It was it was really like no one would ever want to watch video on an iPod. That's crazy. Then they came out with a video iPod. It's really about getting the experience right what he was and, always going for. Yeah. And rewriting history. <laughs> You're holding it wrong, Sam. Yeah. So now watch OS two apps. Is it possible to have a OS one app as well as a OS2 app in the same binary? Have you guys tried that or know anybody? I don't think you can do that. I think it just, and don't know for certain, but I think if you build it with Xcode 7, it's a Watch OS2 app and will be moved over to to the watch instead of running on the phone. Well, they do have like a migration assistant, so I think you could still probably build a WatchOS 1 app with iOS 9, but you can't. I don't think you could do both at the same time. You have to pick mm. one or the other, and I don't know why you would ever build a WatchOS 1 app. Yeah, and if you watch the videos, like pretty much every time it came up, it's just as simple. They just took the logic box from the phone, <laughs> moved it to the watch. You know, it can't That's get any easier than that. Yeah. Except for all the API that you're no longer allowed to hit. Details. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to do a watchOS 2 app, though, you do need to to only support iOS 9. You can, your your watchOS app will go away, what we were saying, if you're trying to run it on an iOS 8 device. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are some other interesting things about 9 as well that are more, not necessarily features, but kind of tightening down things like URL schemes now. If your app is compiled with the 9 SDK, I think you get a couple of, you can whitelist some certain URL schemes that your app is going to open. But after that, doesn't it like prompt the user or? Well, any so the first time the first time you open a URL scheme uh, on iOS nine from one app to another app, it'll prompt you: Are you sure you want to open this app? And this includes Safari. So if there's a link in Safari to open Mail or something like that, it'll be like: Are you sure you want to open this app? Even even Apple apps, which I'm surprised that they didn't give themselves an exemption. But but yeah. Apple would still probably call this a feature. It's a a user privacy <laughs> feature uh, right. that was basically necessitated by all the apps who were kind of snooping around to see what other apps you had installed by doing a check for what URLs they could open. Um, but yeah, 
Uh, if you're if you're on iOS nine, it'll act like you cannot open any URLs unless you've whitelisted them, which is kind of a a big change. Yeah, I, I like that idea. To from a user perspective, it's it's a lot nicer. I don't I don't need Facebook sniffing what apps I've got installed or Twitter. Yeah, those were the big two culprits. Although I'm sure there are many more. Oh yeah. yeah, and probably even inside some of these ad SDKs, they're doing that kind of thing. Yeah, that we just would have no clue. Yeah, apps like the Facebook app is looking to see which apps are on there, so they know which ads to show. You know, a lot of it's trying to profile the user, as well as you know people who paid for ad placement for their for their apps. It's checking to see if the app's already installed or or if they're similar if this person fits the right profile for the ad. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer that this, this was so abused because as someone who, uh, you know, makes ads for their apps, it it doesn't seem like that much of a breach of user privacy to say only show an ad if they don't have it installed on their device already. But people abused it, so we lost the privilege. <laughs> <laughs> Spammers. They're ruining everything, right? Yeah. So another feature along the lines that a lot of people have been talking about recently is uh, transport security. Uh, and we've talked about it a little bit on our podcast too, but, you know, basically um, Apple is locked down any connection you make uh, from NSURL connection or session uh, and requires, by default, if you're built with iOS on SDK, that it, it be SSL, uh, especially a specific version, I think like TLS 1.2 or above. Uh, so they, they want to make sure that, that things are secure, um, again, for, for user privacy. Uh, and that's a scary default because I don't know about you guys, but the first thing that happens when when you run your your app and build with a 9 SEK is any network connection just bombs because I don't know about you, but I had a bunch of HTTP links that are on there. Yeah. Now, will that count for image downloads as well? Do we now have to do that over SSL? Yeah. Or, or you can specify. Uh, you can well, exclude by default. if you. Yeah. So they do give you options to opt out and you can, you don't, it's not an all or nothing. You can pick specific domains or subdomains to opt out of or um, different levels of compliance. Yeah, the, one of the things that's kind of scary, though, is uh, that, that Apple has basically said this is a temporary or they, they phrase it as a temporary uh, exemption, kind of like the old sandboxing stuff in the Mac App Store. So you can temporarily opt out of transport security, but the thought is that at some point it'll be required. And I'm guessing that's not like sometime this year, or hopefully not with iOS 10. We'll see, but the the message is kind of clear. Make sure your stuff is on SSL. And it can be kind of troubling because you may not have uh, entire control over everything you use. Like in our apps, we use uh, S3 to store a bunch of stuff. And there's no way to give it an SSL certificate and and get to your your stuff you've stored there. So it's like sorry. And then you also may have a you know some domain that you have no control over over control over. Yeah. So like so, you're using a third party library potentially that downloads things from another domain. Well, yeah. There's third party libraries and but there's also so, yeah, you either have to drop the library or get it updated yeah. or, or whatever, or you can add an exception, but if, even if you're going the path, all right, I want to support transport security, and you're an app that maybe hits arbitrary URLs, like you're some type of tool that can, you know, query various websites. You're like a tool that uploads mm -hmm. content to blogs or something like that, I think. Um they were talking about this on the Core Intuition podcast recently, but you don't know what the URLs will be. You can't put them in a whitelist or, or ensure. 
that will be secure. So you basically have to turn it off if that's what you want to do. Yeah, and yeah, definitely like an RSS reader that would be a, mm -hmm. a big deal. And then yeah, so, there's there's definitely some legitimate reasons why you wouldn't want to have it enabled for specific endpoints. Like you might have a development environment that has a self-signed certificate or no certificate at all. Um, you might be consuming an RSS feed or just downloading images that are publicly accessible. Uh, so, you know, currently there are ways of progressively reducing how you're supporting it or progressively adopting it. It can get messy, yeah. and I think there's going to be a lot of developers that go to to build switch over to Xcode seven or find out that uh, it doesn't work. Yeah, there's there's some odd misinformation about this too, like uh, AdMob and AdSDK on their blog. They what what they said in quotes was a workaround to make things work was to basically disable the that transport and stuff with, with the, you know, the way that Apple tells you. And a lot of news sites pick this up as Google, again, tries to undermine Apple's security, which <laughs> seems kind of ridiculous uh, to me. But, I mean, there is, there is Apple bloggers who picked it up and were like, you know, expletive you, Google, uh, which <laughs> it's like, you know, do a little research as... It's it's a it's an issue that you have to figure out how to deal with, and it's not as simple as oh we're trying to be horrible to the users if we we can't enable it for all the reasons we we mentioned earlier. Yeah. There's a few articles out there that tell you how to deal with it and how to debug issues. Um, there's a new utility on El Capitan, the NS curl that'll help you debug a, a little bit more. I think we'll hear more about that as uh, people start trying to get production apps ready to go with iOS 9, Xcode 7. So uh, definitely something you should be thinking about now. Get your server teams on it or be thinking about it for your yeah your own stuff that you maintain for sure. It's going to be an exciting period of time coming up. So uh, we also have our app of the week uh, this week. Uh, and, and this week it's uh, an app for uh, immigration lawyers that was uh, sent, us, sent into us by Josh Adams, who is or was in a past life an immigration lawyer. I think he does mostly contract iOS development work now, but he has a an app with lots of useful information uh, about immigration law that lets you bookmark stuff, search through uh, things. It's called, I think, just immigration in the App Store, and it's 25 bucks, which sounds pricey. Uh, someone who's not in immigration law, but I've got to imagine it's a very useful tool for, for those who are, and the reviews seem to indicate that it's useful to people who use it. This this is probably an example where an, an app in a niche can do well as a paid app. Right, yeah. It's definitely one of those things that doesn't deserve a 99-cent price tag or free with ads because it just wouldn't support the development. Yeah. With you know, the, the user base, while you know nationwide, is still smaller than somebody who wants to play Angry Birds. From what I hear, uh, the lawyers can afford twenty five bucks. So that's <laughs> yeah, what, like fifteen minutes of a consultation. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, one other thing that uh, Josh wanted us to point out is that he has a unique uh, UI feature um, in the app. He has a scrollable tab bar controller, so he was not a fan of the convention where you have a little more dot 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 with a standard tab tab bar controller. Uh, so he made one that could scroll, and he put it out on GitHub. We'll have a link to the app and and his tab bar controller in the show notes. Um, it's it's definitely a a unique implementation. It has some animations that you can tweak. To, to move between the tabs as well. Um, so so definitely check it out. Yeah, I like the idea of the scrolling tab bar. The 
the whole thought of the more button is kind of like where features go to die. I think that was in one of our code comments at work. Yeah. Moving this to the more tab so it can die. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, there's definitely some nice discoverability about the scrolling one. Animations, I think, could maybe be a little toned down, but they can be turned off as well in this controller. So it's pretty cool. Uh, it's called JF, JFA Tab Bar Controller, and yeah, we will link it in the show notes. So thanks, Josh, for your submission. Uh, our listeners out there, if you know any immigration lawyers who want some immigration law in their pocket, it's definitely a good buy for them. Uh, and send us your apps. We're always willing to hear more submissions. Um, it's not just so we can collect apps. Uh, we just want to promote other people's apps. And it's not it's free. We don't charge anybody to get listed. And, uh, we do ask that it be an app that you are working on or worked on. And that if you are charging for it, that you provide us a promo code to... We don't go bankrupt because we don't have sponsors for the show or anything like that. So that's about all the time we got for this week, guys. We actually kind of ran long. But it'll probably shake out in editing anyway. Um, <laughs> it felt like it's one of those episodes where we hadn't talked to each other for a while or something. Maybe a little bit rusty. But uh, it's good. Well, good content tonight. Do you want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? Or the Twitters. Yeah, you can find me at AJ Robinson. Uh, you can find me at Alex Argo. And I'm at Sam Quarter. Also, the podcast is Shared Inst. And you will be able to find show notes for this episode at sharedinstance.com slash 27. Also, we do appreciate any ratings and reviews that you leave on iTunes for us. Uh, it helps people discover our podcast and helps it grow. Thanks. Thanks to you guys and our listeners as well. See you guys later. Happy coding. <laughs>